the Last Supper is where we get the concept for communion. And it must have been a difficult time for the disciples because they're just trying to grapple with the fact that Jesus was going away and they didn't understand everything was happening. And communion is typically a solemn thing that we do. You know, again, the Last Supper and communion are two different things, but it's where we get the idea for communion. And I was thinking about this week, um, my, my mom and my stepdad always would tell me, during communion, you need to make sure you're not messing around, you're not playing around in the pews, son. I grew up in church. You're not throwing papers or, or laughing or joking, that it's a very serious moment. So I always grew up with that. And my friends would try to make, make me laugh on purpose sometimes in church just to kind of get me in trouble. Uh, but I, I was always really good about, okay, it's communion time. Straighten up, be solemn, be serious. And that's what I grew up with. And so, uh, and I became a pastor, and I was leading worship one Sunday at our church in Salem. And we had an usher, his name was Al. And Al had these really thick kind of Coke bottle glasses. He was a little clumsy. And uh, he was on to serve communion that Sunday. And we were all concerned. The pastor's like, are you sure that Al is ready for this? Because, you know, we want to make sure it's done right. You know, we have a system and, and passing the things out. And we want to make sure Al is going to be good. And like, oh, yeah, he's, he's good. We already talked him through it all. He's good. So, so Al gets going, and, and, and I'm up there leading worship, and, and the trays are moving around, and everything's going great. So I'm thinking, okay, phew, we made it through. And then Al comes back to the stage, and he's got a whole tray of communion with them. And uh, he, he makes a decision that he shouldn't have. And he's looking at the stage, and he sees the musicians up there, and he's thinking, i got to serve the musicians, too. And there's this really big step. It's like, uh, it's a really big step to get up to the stage, or you can go around to the center of the stage and, you know, pass the communion out. Well, I was near the center of the stage, so he didn't feel like he'd come to the center stage, so he decided to step up on that big step on the side of the stage. And he gets up there, he gets one foot up, and he gets the other foot, and he can't quite, and he starts to lose his balance, and goes, Spills the communion all over the stage. I mean, I'm like, I'm like going back to my, my childhood days thinking, okay, don't laugh, don't laugh, don't laugh. And I literally had to turn around like this, and you could see my body doing like this. Oh, Jesus, help me. Don't laugh, don't laugh. Al's like sprawled out on the floor with communion juice everywhere. I'm like, oh, no. Well, that, to, to say lightly, that kind of killed the mood a little bit for communion. But hopefully that doesn't happen today. Everybody be careful, all right? We're going we're gonna to get through this. But we're in this series called The Last 24, and it's about the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And last Sunday, uh, John talked about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And the Last Supper is what we're going to talk about today. And this happened immediately after Jesus served his disciples by washing their feet. And the Last Supper, again, is where we get the concept for communion. Some people call it the Eucharist or the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, the Blessed Sacrament. So there's a lot of names for it. Whatever your background is, this is what it is. It's communion. It's a ritual that we, we do to remember what Jesus did that night when he gave his disciples the, his, his, the bread and the cup, which represented his body and blood that he would eventually shed on the cross. Now, today, hundreds of millions of Christians around the world are doing this. Like, we're all receiving communion today, which is kind of cool. We're part of a, a larger family that are doing this. And actually, communion probably is the most practiced ritual in the history of the world. We're a part of that. But if we aren't careful, communion can become just like any other ritual. It can lose 
some of its meaning, and it can become empty. And we don't want that to happen because we can learn how, but we don't want to forget why. And Luke 22 records this story that we just saw visually on the video. It's one of the most amazing episodes in the gospel. And Jesus, he's just three years into his ministry at this point. He's on the brink of all these events unfolding that he's eventually going to go to the cross. So the night before, he gathers his disciples, he washes their feet, and then this is what happens in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 7. He says, Then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house as he, that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asked, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. Isn't it cool that Jesus gave them really specific instructions? Isn't that great? Like, we have a God who, like, wants to tell us exactly what we should be doing, you know? And this is really cool. So I love this. So when the hour came, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, the Last Supper, again, is not communion as we understand it. The Last Supper, actually, is Jesus celebrating the Passover, an ancient ritual that dated back more than a 1,000 years. Every Jewish male over the age of 12 years old would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. It was one of the three pilgrimage feasts. And so, kind of like we celebrate our independence on 4th of July, and we celebrate with fireworks and fanfare, and, and uh, we, we, we do that. Uh, just like that, the Jewish people would celebrate their Independence Day on the Passover. It was 430 years of slavery in Egypt, and now... They were free, and God delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. We see nine miracles in the Old Testament, and the tenth miracle was this miracle called the Passover, the sign. And if you want to fully understand what Christ has done for us, you have to look not just at the cross, but you need to look at Passover, because it all ties in. And and, and so let's look at that this morning. I want to take you back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. 
Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, four days, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. What a strange commandment. I mean, let's just be honest. That's kind of weird. If you're reading that for the first time, you're probably thinking, that is out. Did God really say that? Like to put the blood over the door? That's, that's out there. And some of us that have heard that before many, many times, we just kind of gloss over it like, oh, yeah, they just put their blood over the door, you know? Like, really think about that for a second. Did God really say that? Yes, he did. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 says, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. The cross looks back to Passover. The blood serves as a symbol that covers us and protects us. But Passover also looks forward to the cross. The word atonement means to cover. And there was a day of atonement once a year where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for the people of Israel. The sacrifice didn't cancel their sin. It just covered it. Every Old Testament sacrifice looked forward to the final sacrifice. In fact, one of the names of Jesus is the Lamb of God that would be sacrificed for us all. So Passover looks forward to the perfect Lamb of God that would be slain for our sins. Now, I grew up in a church who we used to use phrases like covered by the blood of the Lamb. You know, it's not really a super interesting, it's kind of a weird phrase, but there's power in that. And I think we got away from that a little bit in the church where we don't use those things. We wanted to be kind of seeker-friendly and stuff, and I get that. But there's something about that protective covering spiritually and the significance of that. And so we see Passover was a pilgrimage feast to celebrate the deliverance of Uh, of the Israelites from Egypt. In the same way, communion is kind of like a pilgrimage back to the foot of the cross where we celebrate communion. If we're going to go back to that place where we found hope, we're going to go back to that place where we found grace, we're going to go back to that place we found forgiveness. I think a lot of us, we need places to go back to, right? I mean, I remember growing up as a kid, we would vacation the same place every year. We'd go back to this cabin we had. My parent, my grandparents had a cabin in Mount, near Mount Lassen in California. It was beautiful out there. The cabin was very rustic. You know, we didn't have like running water and stuff, but we didn't care. We were kids, you know, so <laughs> whatever. Outhouse, great. That sounds good to me. You know, we'll pump the water in and from, the, from the stream, and it was just a, it was a beautiful place to go and just remember and, and, and enjoy the outdoors. I think a lot of us have spiritually significant places to go back to. Like for myself, I, when I go back to my home church in California, Live Oak, California, 
I see people that I know and invested in my life. I, I experience those, uh, those memories. And I think, man, this was a significant place. Here's the place where I knelt and gave my heart to Jesus. Here's a place where I was called into ministry. It's significant for me. Even my, my training at Northwest University as a, as a, in Bible, I go back to that place and I think, man, I grew so much spiritually in this place. When I go back there, it all comes back to me. We need places to go back to, to remember. And, and, and I had the honor and privilege of being able to go to the Czech Republic about 10 years ago. And while we were there, we went into Poland. And in Poland is a memorial. You probably heard of it. It's Auschwitz. And Birkenau is there. And it is the largest, was the largest Nazi concentration camp, death camp. Over a million people were killed systematically there at that camp. And if you walk through the, 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 the front of Auschwitz, you'll see this sign that I can't read it because I don't speak German. But it basically means, through work, we are free. <laughs> and it just hits you like, huh. And these people, they came here on railroad cars thinking that they were going to begin a new life. And they had luggage and they had all these things. And, and they've, they've taken all that stuff from them and they systematically killed them. And when you go to the memorial, you see like stacks of luggage. All the people that thought they were coming to a new place. You see hair, like just big whole things of hair displayed. And you, you start to grasp a million plus people died here. And sometimes I think, man, why don't we just, like, just blow it all up because it's awful. Why would you want to experience this? But I, I, in that moment, I remember, why do we need to experience this? We need to experience it because we have a tendency to forget what we should remember. And we tend to, for, to remember what we should forget. Why do we have memorials? That's why. And there's some, some significance about seeing that, I think every high school student should see it. It's because we need to remember what happened. And there's something significant about a pilgrimage. The Passover pilgrimage feast was a way that Jewish people remembered God's deliverance. And when we leave our seat at the end of the service and we go uh, grab the communion elements, we find a place to receive communion, maybe here up above, we'll remember what Jesus did. And we take these elements as Christ followers and we celebrate Communion, we don't have to go anywhere because Jesus came to us. But we're able to go back to the foot of the cross. And it's a pilgrimage of sorts. And, and Jesus said at the end of this passage in Luke, do this in remembrance of me. The word remember is repeated about 250 times in the Bible. It's about reminding ourselves of what's truly important. What's really important? That God, our Heavenly Father, sent His Son, Jesus, to give His life for us on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could be saved, so that we could be in right relationship with the Father. And if you don't have anything else, but you have that, you have everything. And if you don't have that, but you have everything else, you have nothing. Jesus is everything. It's the way that God demonstrated his love for us. That's why the Lord's Supper was so important. That's why we celebrate it by receiving communion today. Jesus said something very interesting in verse 20. We read earlier, and I want to talk a little bit about this because it's, it's fascinating to me. 
it says uh, in verse 20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, blood is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. And I know, okay, let's just face the fact. Some of it is we, it makes us queasy to talk about blood, all right? Anybody else besides me a little queasy? So I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try not to be graphic here, okay? Frankly, I don't like the sight of blood. In fact, my wife and I, we watched this show called Untold Stories of the ER. Anybody ever seen this show before? Okay. And so um, it comes on, and these people are actors, and they use fake blood. It's not real. All right, but they're dramatizations of real events that happen. So these people come to the ER, and this guy's got, like, you know, like buck antlers sticking out of his head. It's like, how'd that happen, dude? You know, and they're removing them. It's crazy stuff like that. Rebar sticking out of them. And so, um, sorry, I told you I wasn't going to be graphic, so. <laughs> but I, I have to turn away sometimes. I'm like, oh, I can't watch that. That's just too much. And my wife, she's like, you're just such a wimp, you know. And then something really bad comes on. She's like, oh, okay, I had to turn away on that one, too. That was just really bad. It's just a lot of blood, man. Just the sight of blood does that to some of us. So I promise not to be too graphic, but I want to talk a little bit about the subject of blood. It doesn't come up in our normal conversations at work or at school, but blood is a significant thing in the Scripture. So before we take this cup together, and we will, I want to talk about the significance of the blood so we can have a better understanding of what we're celebrating and why it's significant. Now, just to remind you, this is not blood, okay? This is juice. These are symbols. There are some people that believe that this actually becomes the blood of Jesus when you drink it. We do not believe that here, uh, or this becomes the body, literal body of Jesus. We don't believe that. It's a symbol. It's, it's an element, okay? But here's the cool thing about us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, all right? Let me show you this slide. This is Amazing. The human body is incredible. There are 60,000 miles of blood vessels in your body. That could stretch around the world like a couple times at, at more, actually. Our veins and arteries are like four-lane highways. Our capillaries are these two-lane roads or like bike paths, if you will, that go 60,000 miles through the human body. The blood travels 12,000 miles a day. It's a long ways. We have about six quarts of blood in our bodies, and it carries an endless supply of oxygen and nitrogen and sodium and potassium and calcium and magnesium and even these little things called hormones, right? They're in there too. And a speck of blood, a tiny dot of blood, has 5 million red blood cells, 300,000 platelets, and 7,000 white blood cells. There is life in your blood. In fact, you know what's so cool about the Bible? The Bible talked about this way before like we even knew this historically, that the life was in the blood. Leviticus 17.11 says, the life of a creature is in its blood. Did you know that George Washington almost died because they bled him? He had an infection. They bled him. They took blood out of him. It's like, no, you should be putting it in him, right? The life of the creature is in the blood. And it turns out the Bible, hey, can be pretty relevant to even science today. It's not a science textbook, but it's, it's a significant thing here. So blood is a significant thing. All right, guys. 
let's talk about, I know you, you maybe you've heard about this, okay? So stop me if you've heard about this. But there's this little thing going around right now called coronavirus. Anybody heard of it? Anybody? Okay, listen. Here's the deal, okay? Okay, I'm not going to talk about coronavirus. Everybody said? All right, let's talk about something more interesting. But um, I will tell you this. At the auction, we're thinking about selling toilet paper and hand sanitizer. (laughs) Because we know we'll make a lot of money if we do. All right? You can blame Brian Burke had a great Facebook post. If you're friends with Brian, go read his Facebook post. It was really good. I I wanted to say amen to it, but I didn't want to start a fight. All right. So let's let's not talk about coronavirus. That's boring. Let's talk about flu. Okay? Did you know the flu is is pretty dangerous? How many get a flu shot? Anybody get a flu shot? All right. About 35% of you get a flu shot. I, I don't get flu shots. Just because I've just been blessed with a good immune system, I don't normally get the flu. I don't get sick. So thank you, Lord. I'm just, I don't know. I don't, I'm not that I'm a special person. I just, God blessed me with a great immune system. But I don't get the flu shots, and I don't judge people that do. But when you get a flu shot, what's happening there? They're actually injecting a little bit of the flu virus into your bloodstream through the aspirator or through whatever they do, just so you can build up an immunity to it. And hopefully it's going to keep you from getting the flu, or at least that strand of the flu, unless you get another strand, which can't help you then. So this practice actually dates all the way back to the 18th century. A pastor's son by the name of Edward Jenner was chosen to, for a procedure called buying the pox. Okay, at that point, smallpox was devastating nations. There was no cure, and the entire populations were being decimated by it. And Edward, at the age of eight years old, this seems like cruel and unusual punishment here, okay? It was a part of a crude attempt to ward off the disease. So for six weeks, the town doctor bled a handful of boys repeatedly. And this physician would scratch their arm with a knife and place a dried scab of of a smallpox victim underneath that, into their bloodstream. And then after a month, guess what happened? Edward recovered from the smallpox. He recovered. And he was forever immune to smallpox. Okay? He didn't have the disease. He, 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 he was given a little bit of it, and he, he, he was immune from it then. And so Edward Jenner went on to coin this word vaccination. And it has revolutionized the way we think about disease. Because we can actually borrow the properties, defensive properties, of someone else's blood to protect us. What an incredible thing. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, okay? So hang with me, all right? Okay, let's go deeper. When our bodies are invaded by a bacteria or a virus, the body responds by producing and sending white blood cells, which attack those antigens. And during healthy periods, the body has about 25 billion white blood cells. When you're sick, your white blood cell count goes up because the body produces them as a defense mechanism. So the body can mobilize about 10 times that number. That's, that's incredible. The average white blood cell lives about 10 hours. A few can live about 60 to 70 years. And what they do is they preserve the chemical memory of previous invaders. That's why you don't get the same virus twice. The immune system has an incredible 
Memory. Okay, I don't know how many of you are interested in immunology. If you're not, I'm sorry. We're going to go a little bit farther, okay? I'm almost done. Hold with me, okay? When an antigen invades, a circulating lymphocyte cell touches it and memorizes its shape. And then it rushes to the nearest lymph node, and it turns into a chemical factory by passing on this newly acquired information to thousands of lymphocytes in your body that then in turn produce billions of antibodies. And over time, we build up an immunity to the antigens that we can overcome. In a sense, the secret of defeating these specific antigens are locked into our cellular memory. And the more antigens we overcome, the greater immunity that we have. All right, sorry guys, that science class is over now, okay? Sorry high schoolers, I know you deal with this all the time. Let me make the connection, okay? Once you overcome a particular antigen, a second infection of the same type will do no harm. Why? Because in the words of Flannery O'Connor, you have wise blood. Blood that has learned the secret of overcoming what you are faced with. Let me tell you something. In the spiritual sense, Jesus has wise blood. Hebrews 4.15 says, He was tempted in every way, just as we were, yet he did not sin. Every spiritual antigen, if you will, you encounter, he encountered already. Dr. Paul Brand said this, A person who overcomes a particular antigen has the blood of an overcomer. Because they overcome that antigen, they have overcome it, and they have immunity to it. Are you ready for this? Revelation 12, 11. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Revelation 7, 15. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he sits on the throne and will spread his tent over them. I love that picture of that covering, that analogy. Here's the bottom line, friends. We have a sin problem. Am I the only one? No, we have a sin problem. And the only solution to that problem, the only immunity, if you will, spiritually, is the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And in God's economy, it was Jesus who shed his blood at Calvary, the perfect Lamb of God, without defect, that allows us to overcome. Amen. So last time I spoke, I talked a little about my daughter, Hannah. I asked her permission to share this. She's in class right now. Um, but when she was born, she was born very small, one pound, six ounces, she was in the hospital for two and a half months, and uh, it was very touch and go, especially at the beginning. We weren't sure, you know, if she was going to recover, if she was going to live. I mean, we just looked at her, and we thought, okay, she looks very, very weak, very, very sick, transparent almost. I mean, you can almost look right through her, just not, a, not any meat on her bones. And so um, it was very, very hard as a parent to look at your child and think, man, I don't know. This doesn't look good. And I remember when the doctors came to us, I don't know how long it was in, maybe a few days, maybe it was a week, I don't know. But 
The doctors came to us and said, we think your daughter would benefit from a blood transfusion. And I've never received a blood transfusion. My wife's never received a blood transfusion. I mean, I grew up in the 80s, like blood transfusions, people were getting AIDS and stuff. So my mind immediately went to that. And I'm like, is it safe? You know, how do we know that the blood is safe and it's going to help? And they're like, trust me, we test, we do all these things. It's safe, okay? So we're like, okay. I mean, we didn't have any religious, you know, objections to it. We thought, all right, well, if you think it'll help, let's do it. Now I'm so thankful for medical advances and things like that, but I'm also thankful for the Lord's miracle hand in, in my daughter's life. This wasn't just the medical stuff that saved her. I believe it was the hand of the Lord. Um, so they gave her the blood transfusion. I remember looking at her before they gave her the blood transfusion. Like I said, just transparent, just skinny, nothing there. And then they gave her the blood transfusion, and all of a sudden, like, you could see right there, like, color come into her skin. Like, she was, like, white, and then now she was pink. And she had life again. She, like, she would open her eyes more. She was eating better. She was kind of, her lungs were working a little bit better. Things were happening. Two blood transfusions later, there was a big thing that we were able to overcome. And the reason I share that story with you is because the life is in the blood. Not just physically, but also spiritually as we think about this today. The life is in the blood. And I wondered this week, I was talking to my wife about this. Who, who donated that blood? I mean, you guys, you would be blown away if you could have seen the transformation that it did for my daughter. Who donated that blood? Some man, some woman, while my daughter was receiving life-giving blood, was sitting there at work eating a sandwich or driving on the freeway. Totally oblivious to the fact that they were giving life and cells and things that my daughter needed to to not only survive, but to thrive. That just blows me away when I think about that. What a moment to witness the impact of the difference that it made for our family. You know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus shed his blood. Physically shed his blood for us. 1 Peter 1.18 says, It was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Immunity, spiritual immunity, grace, forgiveness is in that blood, the blood of Jesus. And friends, he didn't just shed his blood. He shed his blood to share his blood. When we celebrate communion, we're symbolizing the blood that was not just shed on the cross, but was shared with us, a a spiritual transfusion, if you will. It just doesn't give us life. It gives us eternal life. Every time we celebrate communion, we remember Jesus' words at the Last Supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Remember, every covenant throughout Scripture began with blood. The covenant was made, established in blood. The old covenant was a blood sacrifice, but the new covenant is the blood of Jesus Christ, sacrificed once and for all for our sins. 
And when we drink this cup together, we're renewing that covenant through God Almighty that he's made with us through the death of his son and through his resurrection. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, as we prepare our hearts for this time of communion, I just want to begin by thanking you, Lord, for the life that you've given to us. The life, blood that revives us, that resurrects our dead spirits and gives us life. And right now, Lord, I pray for those that have maybe never made a decision to say yes to you, Jesus. Lord, I pray in this moment that they would step across that line of faith and say, I want to receive your grace. I want to receive your forgiveness. And today they would receive communion as a son or daughter of the Lord. And they would understand for the first time the significance of the bread that symbolizes your body and the cup that symbolizes your blood that was shed for us, that cleanses us from all sins and gives us immunity spiritually to be overcomers. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.